Good morning, all. This is Coffee with Jim, engaging podcasts with healthcare leaders. Today, we're so lucky to have with us Dr. Andrew Catanzaro, and our theme today is boldly going where no one has gone before. Dr. Andrew Catanzaro is a board-certified infectious disease physician and leader, part of the Adventist Healthcare System in Maryland. Currently, he is the Director of Infectious Diseases, the Chair of the Infection Prevention Committee, and the Chair of the Antibiotic Stewardship Committee. Dr. Catanzaro trained at Georgetown University Hospital and the NIH. He conducted research and published several articles with the Director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Additionally, he has worked with the development of vaccines for HIV, smallpox, and Ebola. Dr. Catanzaro is currently an Assistant Clinical Professor of Healthcare Sciences at George Washington University. University, and so much more. Andy, so great to have you with us this morning. Thanks, Jim. Good morning. Andy, to help us get to know you in a little more detail, let's talk a little about our theme, boldly going where no one has gone before. Obviously, you're a Trekkie, so you can choose only one teammate. Is it Dr. Spock or Captain Kirk? Dr. Spock. Okay. The name Catanzaro comes from the toe in Italy, Calabria. So in your pasta sauce, do you prefer Calabrian sun-dried tomatoes or tomatoes or Calabrian red chili peppers? Oh, definitely tomatoes. I, I, I'm not a really big spicy hot guy. Okay. That might reveal a little more about our leadership discussion today, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> if you could take a safe vacation these days... Where would you go with the family? Mountains, beach, other? Well, you know, I vacation in, in Italy. So since you mentioned Italy, I'd probably go to Florence, because okay. uh, which has got a little bit of combination of both, right? So, but it's mostly just an awesome city with so much culture and history. For sure. Great city. And how about most inspirational leader for you? Most inspirational leader. You know, I think uh, in many ways I picked my father. So my father has been a leader in development of tuberculosis uh, diagnostics and had been doing research for a while and is still very active in the field in many ways. And we talk, you know, about some of these big subjects. And so, yeah, I think my dad, Tony Catanzaro, Antonino Catanzaro, for his kind of ongoing intellectual pursuits and, and leadership pursuits. Wow, great story there. So Andy, did he come over from Italy or was it uh, grandparents or others? Uh, interesting story. So he came back, he came over from Italy twice. So his father, my grandfather, was an immigrant, came to the United States, met my grandmother, uh, started to raise a family, but he didn't like the American style so much. And so he went back to Italy, to Sicily, got there. They, My dad grew and, and the family grew up for, you know, their seven or eight years and then came back to America again. So, you know, he didn't like Sicily. He liked America better for for, you know, that's a lot of the, the modernization, you know, Sicily was quite remote and somewhat backward, you know, compared to the rest of the world. And so kind of this back and forth immigration pattern. Interesting. Well, we both shared that Sicilian roots, so to speak. You mentioned your dad, other family members at home that you would like to mention now? Oh, sure. So my wife, Laura, has been uh, at home and is homeschooling our kids. Before the pandemic, she was already doing homeschooling and two kids, Kyle and Ella, age 14 and 16, providing us with a lot of enjoyment and entertainment and constant stimulation, as you can imagine. I bet. We're all working through those challenges and the new types of stimulation, as you mentioned. So let's take that to our theme today, boldly going where no one has gone before. Andy, what makes this theme important for us now? You and I have had the, the pleasure to be having our dialogues maybe almost for the last uh, six months or so. Tell us more. So as you mentioned, I'm a Trekkie. And you know, one of the things that I loved about this series is there's a 
a group of people, 400 plus on a ship. And there's a few central characters, obviously, that you're following all the time, leaders. and, and they're, But their, their mission really is to go out into space and discover new things, right? They're not conquering. They're not defending. Sometimes that happens. But their primary mission is to go out and discover new things for the Federation. And I think in, in many ways after our conversations, that's kind of where we are as a society, right? None of us have lived through a pandemic. Certainly there's never been a pandemic of this size affecting the world because the world's population is much larger than it's ever been. There are bigger percentage plagues and whatnot. We are going through this experience together and we could go in fear, but it doesn't really feel that comfortable to say, you know, I'm going to go out and every day and operate from fear. So turning it on its head a little bit, also recognizing some some, many of the injects that we have. So turning on his head is to go where no one has gone before is to me really exciting. It's like exploring, you know, I'm out on a new path in nature or I'm out on a, a new vacation, like someplace I've never been before. I'm going to explore for me. Other people have been here, but then you say, okay, well, for this particular moment in time, we have science injects, medicine injects, and societal injects that are constantly stimulating us, this is an opportunity to say, what's the world we're going to create out of this pandemic? It's a, it's changed so much for all of us. But on the other side of this, or even while we're in it, you know, are amazing possibilities. I've had opportunities that I never would have dreamed of a year ago in my career. I, I think another piece of this is I'm constantly reading the medical journal. I mean, I, I don't have enough time to read things, but there's constantly new things, just like there's new things on the enterprise. They encounter new different civilizations, new pathogens, new everything. And they have to live a little bit by the seat of their pants and a little bit by their experience. So on a very high level, that's why I, I like this theme when we started talking about it. Because you've seen a lot. You've seen SARS, Ebola, Zika. You talked about developing new therapies. You also mentioned in one of our previous discussions, standing on the shoulders of giants and how fortunate we are for their experiences and that there's no roadmap. In some ways, there's no roadmap in the sense that we have never experienced a coronavirus pandemic. On the other hand, as you mentioned, there is a roadmap. You mentioned smallpox, right? So we did a, a vaccine trial, mostly for smallpox, mostly during the biodefense era when we were very concerned about being attacked by a biowarfare agent. And then also there were scientific questions that were embedded that, in, you know, how can we vaccinate people and then understand the immune response and then build on it. But smallpox has been with our, our species for generations uh, and caused tremendous amounts of, of death. I read this article about Abigail Adams, you know, the vice, the president's wife in the Washington Post, and their fear and their desperation pushed them to take pus from a cow and put it in their arm. I mean, that's crazy, right? When you think about it, to do that, but they were doing it with science, with the best of their medical information to do it. They were taking essentially virus and inoculating themselves. They, and that's what it was called. So in some ways, the vaccine science now is standing on the shoulders of giants that did this work generations ago to deploy the vaccines, another example. So there was a worldwide effort to deploy the polio vaccine. I was reading about Elvis, you know, being vaccinated in public was a stimulation for the youth of America to get vaccinated. And it turned out the acceptance rate was very low when, when polio vaccine first came out, not unlike today. But the real story was not about Elvis, was not about that photo photo moment. The real story was about the kids who uh, looked up to Elvis, who looked up to the science, who didn't want to have polio, 
and started forming vaccine clubs. And they started spreading in and they were listened to by their adult groupings, you know, about how do we message this vaccine to kids in their language? They employed kids talking to kids, peer education, something that we can learn from, you know, in this modern era. You know, there were even young ladies, you know, in high school who said, you know, you don't get a date with me if you don't have the vaccine. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. breaking it down to say, you know, this is important to me. I want to be with you, but I don't want to be with you if you might have polio or if you could have polio. All those conversations come back again in the sense that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, but they have a little bit different twist. We have a new vaccine technology that's been around for maybe three to five years. We have a new moment in time where people have to make decisions about their health and make those decisions. So it's new for us, but in some ways we can pull back from you know some of the histories, the history lessons and, and say, well, okay, how did other people do this before? How do we want to do it now? What are we choosing to do with our fear of the virus and potentially our fear of the vaccine? Do we want to operate out of fear or do we want to operate sort of boldly? Wow, great stories and great reminders of that bit of history. It's a bit scary. And to your point, it's a bit exciting. You're touching on structural leadership lessons here too. We're also noticing at this moment, you alluded to, the erosion of trust. I assume that means one of the leadership goals is rebuilding trust. What's your take on that from a, your leadership perspective as an infectious disease physician? So when we were first hit with the pandemic, kind of saw it coming and we could kind of prepare, but many of us knew, you know, a plan. But one of my quotes that I kind of adopted very early was, everyone has a plan until you're punched in the face, which was Mike Tyson, right? If you're punched in the face by Mike Tyson, your plans kind of go out the window. So we were planning and trying to get that, but yeah, we got punched in the face in the spring. You know, we got hit really, really hard. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of mistrust. There wasn't a lot of science behind protection. And so I then turned to another kind of mantra of mine that kind of got me through it is we're all going to get through this together. Emphasizing the all and together really became a message of rebuilding trust. I decided very early on, even though I'm at a slight risk in my mid fifties, I won't give you the exact number. <laughs> when you look at the data, it was clear that, you know, I didn't have zero risk. I didn't have a hundred percent chance of full recovery if I got coronavirus. So I decided to learn very, very specifically about what I could do to protect myself and then spread that information as quickly as possible to my teams. And then say, when it's changing, it's changing and why it's changing and really take my time in going through that information. Some people really needed the information. They needed to take it apart and put it back together like I do. Other people were like, if you say it, Andy, I'm going to do it. And the latter people are people who trusted me. People have been at the bedside with me through other experiences. We had been through the Ebola scare. We didn't have any Ebola cases, thank God. But we had been through it together. I knew who the leaders were who stood up and said, we're going to do this. And so I started with them. Then the front lines, the front lines, I mean, the nurses, the technicians, transporters, we went very methodically through the entire hospital and talked to each and every unit about what we knew at that time with COVID. And by the way, it's going to change. So, but we spent our time to put on the PPE, to show you, to walk through it, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, most of the time in small groups. Actually, those groups were probably bigger than they should have been. We had like 30 people at one time. Biggest and most intense build trust building exercise involved 25 or 30 patient transporters. These are people who are truly on the front lines every moment of every day. 
They're transporting patients around the hospital. They see people do all sorts of crazy things, right? They pull down their mask. They wouldn't wear their mask. They refuse to wear their mask. And they needed to know how to protect themselves. And these patients are COVID and non-COVID patients that they're transporting. We, we couldn't tell at that point. We yeah. didn't even have enough testing to tell. We just knew they were sick. So we didn't know what they had. We knew that probably clinically they had COVID. Now looking back on it, probably 70 or 80% of them have COVID. But these transporters had no idea. They don't, they don't have access to the data. We didn't even have testing then. But we knew what we needed to wear. The CDC had told us. The science had led us to that. So our trust building exercise was to take this conversation, take our time, to schedule it with the teams and say, show up at this time, we'll tell you what to wear, we'll tell you how to wear it, and we'll answer all your questions for an hour, hour plus. And so, you know, we, we were in a very small conference room and did the best we could to work through the information. And just, if, if I didn't know the answer to a question, I'd say, thank you for that question. Let me, get, let me find out the answer and get back to you. So those kind of trust building exercises pay off in the long run. For me personally, if I'm too far away from the front lines, I'm spending too much time in, then I think trust begins to erode a little bit. I have to go back to the front lines, talk to them. I'm always seeing patients these days because I feel like I have to keep my pulse on the front lines, help when I can, continue to get the experience. And people respect that. They know, <laughs> I was talking to a nurse yesterday, actually. She knows I come by around four o'clock to their floor. So she knows if she has a question, she can ask me, pull me aside. I'll see the patient and then she can pull me aside and ask her questions. She knows there's a regular cadence of that. I'm rebuilding trust. Trust has been eroded in a number of ways. And I think it takes a conscious effort to rebuild it. And in order to lead, you know, it'd be terrible if you're leading and you turn around, like, where'd everybody go? You know, <laughs> they're all behind. So I try to bring them along with me as much as possible so we can do this together because I can't do this alone. Great points here and, and behaviors, leadership behaviors. Andy, if I might offer, you told me also part of that trust rebuilding was actually do, doing something that you and others hadn't done in previous pandemics. That was proactively addressing fear. And to your point, we're not doing this alone. There are times we, we get scared. And you also, maybe you want to mention Battle Buddy or not. But tell us more about proactively addressing fear. How does that help? You know, I have kind of a method that I developed of addressing fear personally came out of the Ebola experience. I like what you and I coined as a term kind of fear protocol. So we'll kind of call it for that because I, I like that term. It almost sounds like the, the chapter, the name of a chapter in a book. But for me, the fear protocol is really important because uh, it's just it's part of the human nature to be afraid and particularly afraid of something you can't see. So I've spent my whole life, you know, working with pathogens that I can't see, sometimes holding in my hand, you know, HIV virus. I remember when I was working in the lab with, with Fauci, you know, we'd transfect these cells and create virus to do experiments with it. And at one point I had in my hand, you know, enough virus to infect every person on the planet. Right. And I had made it in like three or four days. Crazy. Right. But I wasn't afraid because I knew I had my gloves. Uh, you know, I had no breaks in my skin. I had personal protective you know, equipment that I was wearing in the lab. I, you know, I wasn't being cavalier about it, but, you know, I was being appropriately cautious. I knew I could do that because, like you said, I had battle buddies in the lab. I have battle buddies in this current time point to support us. And But to go back to the fear protocol for a second, number one, admitting that we have fear, and that's being vulnerable, but that we're all potentially going to have some fear about 
something like whether it's HIV or Ebola or coronavirus. The second part is to, for me, is to kind of learn more about what is the object of my fear. Is it that I'm going to, you know, make a mistake putting on the PPE? Or when I'm putting on the PPE, I'm so distracted by the PPE, I can't be with the patient. And that was very real in Ebola. It's still real with coronavirus. To get some knowledge about the subject calms me down. So get some facts, talk to an expert, read an article about that, take apart the article, put it back together again with somebody else who's knowledgeable about the subject. I'm blessed to know people in this field who I can do that with. So that's step two. And then step three is to, is to train. To train and train and train. And that's a step I took kind of from the military. In order to, to do your operations, you train so that it becomes a reflex. And so for me, the training was putting on the PPE before I went in the room, looking at it, figuring out how to wear it. What do I put on first, second, third? Training with someone else who can watch me do these things and make sure I'm doing it right and give me feedback. So those three that, you know, admitting the fear, you know, that, that's kind of novel for healthcare providers, right? We don't like to say we're afraid, whether it's afraid of death or it's afraid of a virus. virus, whether it's afraid of being, you know, on a ventilator. You know, we don't like to admit that we're afraid, but we all are. And I think there's a certain amount of strength in joining when you admit your emotions to someone else. You're saying, I feel this too. You know, admitting those emotions, learning about the subject, and then training really are those three key steps for me for the fear protocol. And it, and I talk to some people about the fear protocol so they can kind of understand there's not, there's a method to the madness and it works for me and maybe it'll work for you. If it doesn't work for you, figure out what your own fear protocol is. Maybe it's meditation in the morning. Maybe it's taking three deep breaths, you know, before I do, you know, go do something that's, that's fearful. But, um, and then, you know, we could talk about the, the battle buddy situation, but I think that also helps uh, with the fear. Your bit of vulnerability there, I know from our previous discussions is, is helping you lead at this moment, because all of those points in the fear protocol are not only right for you, it's how you're showing up and how you're modeling leadership for, for others. And on one hand, one might say that you're kind of a chief grounding officer too, for all the other people that you oversee and or work with during this uncertain moment. Is that any truth there? Yeah. So the chief grounding officer is really important because it's hard to make a decision if we're, if we lean into the hype, you know, it's really easy to lean into the hysteria or the hyperbole or the single anecdote that leads us to a place of fear and then reaction. As a chief grounding officer, sometimes in a meeting, part of my role is to say, what's really going on in here? Or asking people what's really going on here. How are we feeling about this subject? How are we feeling about this plan? You know, are we going off into a direction that's helpful or not so helpful? You know, checking in kind of what the temperature is of the group. Some groups are very cool and calm and collected and they need a little juice to get them moving. You know, it's almost, we're talking about the weather. No, we're not talking about the weather. We're talking about, you know, people's lives and their safety. We're talking about big stuff. So let's get a little urgency to this to make the decision. Other times the house is on fire and we, we got to do something now. We got to do something now. No, we don't have to overreact. We have to be measured and thoughtful and calm down a bit. I'm Italian, so I'm raising my hands. Both of us are doing the same thing, kind of so we can, we can think rationally and pull in some of our, our rational information. So I think that's, that's a, a novel thing that I've been working with to be that role model of saying, well, how are people doing right now? You know, are you freaking out? What's your pulse? You know, if your pulse is, is 130 beats per minute, well, we should probably acknowledge that to bring it back down so we can get, get into the things that we need to do. 
if your pulse is 40, you're a little too chill. You got to kind of raise your pulse a little bit and get your juices flowing so we can get the job done, you know, because this is the job that we have to complete. Well, it sounds like a delicate edge to balance. Can be, yeah. So getting some folks to, I guess, get to more urgency and getting others to, to chill out a bit more, as you mentioned. Let's talk a little bit, Andy, about when folks know outside of your immediate medical circles, when folks discover that you are an infectious disease physician and physician leader working on all these epidemiological issues, what's their reaction? Do you notice any difference? Are you talking about outside of healthcare or? Well, both. What, what are people's reactions yeah. to you being so close to these viruses? Some people are really very interested and kind of want to know a lot of the technical details or they want to know, they want some reassurance that we're going to get through this. The sky is not falling like they've heard in the media, you know, the house is not burning down and they really, you know, want to kind of chat or they want to chat about their personal experiences or their personal situation. I have noticed um, and are paying a little bit more attention to some of the, we'll say, distancing reactions. Some of the voices that you, I don't hear from, I'll personalize this, we have to, I think, appreciate. So there's definitely people who have distanced themselves from me and my family because of the work that I do. Because I work in a hospital, I work with COVID patients. There are definitely people who, friends, who we will, not even with masks, will not even see us, talk to us, not even go on a walk. They're just... Nope, it's too much for them. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he had his infectious diseases and he had a similar experience. He, he knows that there's friends that he's lost that were good friends that no longer are part of his life. It's tough. You know, it's, it's tough to, I can understand people's fear. I can understand them, but it's, it's a, that's a novel experience for me. You know, when I worked with HIV, nobody worried that they could get something from me. <laughs> um, there was a lot of interest but with coronavirus, because it's so highly transmissible, you can't, it can be transmitted from asymptomatic person to another, you know, and there's so much misinformation about masking and whatnot, that there are definitely some people who are not part of my life anymore or our family's life because of it. That's sad, but it is, it is the reality of the moment that we're in now. I hope we'll pick up again in the future. Uh, on the other hand, I have the other extreme, which, uh, you know, is also exciting. I have people who text me or call me who, you know, ask my wife how I'm doing. They're deeply concerned for my personal safety, as well as my mental health, because they know that we're, we're in a, as a system under a great deal of strain. I would say by and large, the people who are, you know, positively supporting me are much greater than those are negative. But I think we just have to be realistic that, you know, some people are going to operate out of fear and they may come back again when the situation calms down, but, um, you know, it, it kind of is what it is. Andy, these are fascinating insights on how this impacts you and your family personally. Does this contribute to burnout differently for infectious disease physicians and clinicians? We had a lot of burnout before the pandemic. Now this is new and unique. Yeah, um, I think the temptation, well, Certainly burnout is a real phenomenon. I've experienced it a couple of times in my career. The spring was very, very hard for me uh, this, this year. Volume of patients, uh, number of people who died, the volume of work, the fear of the unknown, not having any real tools in my tool chest beyond supportive care. I don't want to de-emphasize that either though, but uh, as an infectious disease doctor, I'm used to having a couple of antibiotics, a couple of antivirals, a couple of interventions that we can do that will work for some percentage of the patients, not all of them, um, because in the hospital, it's just not always feasible to overcome everything that comes our way. But the spring, the volume was out of control. 
and the number amount of death uh, that we saw, none of us were prepared for. To see 40, 30 and 40 year olds die of an infectious disease was personally very, very difficult. And the volume of patients, you know, I like to have a connection with the patients or the families, and that was not there, you know, during that phase. And so I was very close to burnout. So I think it is certainly a real phenomenon, part of started to develop kind of an anti-burnout strategy because it was so important for me. And, and part of this this coaching that you and I are doing is, is a key part of that, is to talk about, you know, in a safe space, to talk about the challenges, to be open and honest about what's going on, and then to try and figure out what's the action item. What are we going to do about it today? What's one thing we can do and connect with that one thing? What's the success of last week? You know, what's the one success that you could think about last week? And those become kind of positive anchors to continue to move forward. And then also to be attentive to this, you know, and to talk to other physicians about burnout. What are, what are you doing about your burnout? Learning from them what's successful, but also offering them some successes in my life. Oh yeah, when I go outside and I go on a walk, even if it's just by myself without my phone, that is rejuvenating. And so, okay, maybe I'll do that next week. You know, <laughs> maybe I'll do that tomorrow. You know, um, build that into what I'm doing to keep it fresh and keep it changing. Yeah, these are part of your steps toward combating burnout, building resilience. You spoke about coaching and organizational support. You also have some additional personal behaviors that you've you've touched on. And do you want to mention draining the amygdala in a reference to, you know, Goldman's amygdala hijack? Sure, sure. Well, I think that's also one of the signs of burnout, right? So the amygdala, when I get kind of juiced about something, I get more angry than rational. The quicker that happens, the more it's a sign that I'm, I'm got to take care of myself personally, because I'm, I'm usually pretty cool and calm and level-headed, but if that's something or does something and I go automatically to attack mode or automatically to that person's a bad person mode, that's a sign that I got some more work to do on myself because that's not usually me. But part is it understanding the physiology of anger and understanding how my reptilian brain can hijack me and take me to a place I don't want to be. Another part of it is going back to the anti-burnout. So some of that energy, if you will, that fight or flight energy, I release a lot through exercise. When, I'm, when I was really close to burnout, I recognized there's things I wasn't doing that were really important for me personally. Exercise, regular sleep habits, eating healthy, taking breaks and going on walks. All those things would make my brain better prepared for whatever was being thrown at me that day. When I wasn't doing those things, the amygdala hijack was a lot more frequent. I was engaging in personal behaviors with other people at work that were not normal for me. You know, like this person's anti-me, you know, they're, they're resisting these changes because they don't like me. Well, they may have a billion other reasons to not to resist the change, whether it's a change in PPE or a change in policy. It's not personal. Right. Or they're hijacked. They're hijacked. I got, if I take care of myself, I'm not likely to be hijacked in that way. But if I'm not taking care of myself, I recognize that. Well, thanks again for that candor and that vulnerability there. Let's begin to wrap up today. Tell us more about what success will look like for you within Adventist. I know, again, you're leading a distribution campaign. And again, you're just leading folks to being at their best selves during these crisis moments. Tell us what will success look like in the next, I don't know, coming months? Well, right now, what's really prominent on my mind is, is the vaccine distribution. So we set a goal that we're not going to achieve, which is to get you know 20 million doses into people 
by the end of December. So now we got to drop back and say, we got about a tenth of that. What can we do? How can we help people to get to our goal of deploying this vaccine? Because the vaccine is going to give us immunity without getting us sick. And that's an important thing because whatever we get sick, we're going to lose some people. So how do we hold this? And I was reading a Wall Street Journal article yesterday. This particular time, for me, success will look like having the conversation with people about the data and the information about a vaccine and having it in such a way that I feel good about it and you feel good about it. I've shared with you some information, but I'm not pressuring you guilty. This is not the paternalistic era of the 50s where you know, we all did it because we were told. This is 2020, 2021. To me, success will look like I'm having conversations with people about in a meeting or in, you know, an educational forum to say, this is why the vaccine is valuable to you. You decide for you if you want the vaccine, not because of your fear, not because it's your obligation. Maybe some people do it out of obligation. You do it out of a knowledge and out of a calculation that you make, right? So I made the calculation to get the vaccine. I want other people to me, I want them to have the knowledge that they take that vaccine because they want to, because it's important in their life and it's an important thing to do. We can have that conversation and people can feel good about that conversation and then take the vaccine. I think that will be successful and that will serve us. That will be restoring trust. That will be restoring trust with our community if we can say, this is the information about the vaccine. So I really want to go back to my team and say, we've started this already, even within the healthcare workers, how do we have this conversation? We have a podcast that I'll put a plug in for that's going to be on our, our website, Adventist Healthcare, Dr. Barney Graham and our medical staff about what is the vaccine and why is it safe and effective. To me, success will be, oh, I heard Dr. Graham or I understand the information and I decided to do the vaccine because of those pieces of information. That I think will be success. Great. Well, obviously using a lot of your influencing skills, your leadership influencing skills, and to wrap up our topic of boldly going where no one has gone before, uh, what type of medical leadership is needed now? We're, we're two days away from the new year. What type of medical leadership will be needed in 2021? You know, I, like, I really like the word boldly because it, it admits that there's something that we're going to do that we're maybe a little bit worried about, but we're still going to do it anyway. We're going to go into 2021 with a pandemic in full force in front of us. Let's just be honest with that, right? There is no mitigation strategy right now that is effective to bending the curve in any way, shape, or form. This thing is, is a raging pandemic. And yet we're going to start 2021 whether we want to or not. So, you know, the bold part is to say, yeah, we're a little bit worried about what we're going to do but we're gonna do something and it's gonna work. And it's gonna work for us. The hospitals are not gonna fall over. The medical field is not gonna collapse internally. We are gonna to continue to take care of people and do the very best that we can. And that's bold. That's admitting that we don't know exactly what's around the corner. We may be able to peak a little bit, but we know it's not gonna be great, but we're still gonna to work to get out the vaccine, work with new medications, work with, with leaders who can say, here's a new medication that might be effective and make some decisions to function. And I think actually in these times, making decisions just to function is a bold enterprise because there's lots of things in our country right now that are not functioning because of the pandemic. And if we don't tackle this head on, I don't think we're being bold. So I think that's the challenge of 2021 to be a bold leader, not to throw complete caution to the wind and just do whatever we think makes us feel good at that moment, but to really make some thoughtful decisions and say, 
this is where we're going to go. We're going to keep an eye on the data. If it, the data doesn't say that we're doing a good job, we're going to change it. Thanks. Those insights. We've talked about some polarities in, in your leadership. So thanks for the boldness and vulnerability today. Thanks for reassuring us with your honesty and integrity. Before we wrap up for the new year, I'd like to say to you, thanks for your great work in our community and continued good health to you and your family. Thanks so much for all you're doing, Andy. Well, sure. Thank you, Jim. And thanks for your support. You've been a big supporter of me and what I'm trying to accomplish. So thanks for your help. My great pleasure, as you know. So happy new year, Andy. We'll talk soon. Happy new year.